G'day, I'm Mark Pesci, and welcome back to This Week in Startups Australia. Strap yourselves down for another of our news specials. We'll learn how some new open-source legal documents can make seed funding a lot easier for Australian entrepreneurs, find out why a small change to our immigration laws will completely transform venture capital in Australia, and take a peek at a recent capital raise via crowd investing. All the latest news that matters on this episode of This Week in Startups Australia. This Week in Startups Australia is proudly sponsored by Venue Mob, the biggest venue marketplace in Australia, and eCal, the right time communications platform. It's time for another news special, and as always, we're joined by an investor and a journalist. Our investor is Dean Dorrell, a principal at Carthona Capital. Based in Sydney, Carthona describes itself as a boutique venture investor and advisor focusing on startups and growth companies. Carthona has made investments in startups such as Seek, Ingogo, and Airtasker. Welcome, Dean. Thanks, Mark. Nice to be here. Dean is joined by Josh Taylor senior journalist with ZDNet, and I will probably say ZDNet several times because I'm an American and we think like that. Josh covers many facets of the digital economy with a special focus on the NBN and on issues of censorship and copyright. Josh recently announced that he'll be joining the staff at privatemedia'scrikey.com.au next month. Josh, welcome. Thanks for having me. Now, in this segment... We're starting off speaking with Daniel Atkin from Spark Helmore. Now, Daniel's been working with Airtree Ventures, and he's recently drafted and released a set of open source documents for seed stage investments. And the hope is that these documents will create more transparency in the fundraising process and reduce the fees that startups spend on lawyers who have to draft these documents pretty much from scratch every time. Daniel, welcome to This Week in Startups Australia. Thanks for having me. So what was the genesis of this project? Is this similar to the project that goes on at Y Combinator where they released a whole bunch of seed funding documents a few years ago? I don't, I don't think it was quite as sophisticated as that. The, the actual genesis started some time ago with... Um, with Nikki and Rick uh, from, from Blackbird, and then uh, we were working with Paul and Craig from Airtree, and it was the, the whole idea was really, like you said, to bring transparency, um, efficiency, and speed, and, and also a piece of education mm-hmm. to to the the fundraising process. Um, my my feedback so far on having launched the documents has has, has generally been positive. So I, th- I think that's um, that's that's been an it's been well received. And uh, just just to make a note, we will be linking to the documents from our Tumblr, which is at twistartupsaus.tumblr.com. So you'll be able to go to our Tumblr and go directly to the documents. All right. So you have these documents that are designed to make things easier. Do you think that there's a dollar figure that an average startup in a seed round would save in legal fees? I mean, are they completely sort of boilerplate you can just fill in the missing bits and 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 you're off and yeah, running no, that's, 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 a, that's a good question um my, my uh, people have actually asked me that and said oh have you talked yourself out of a job and my, <laughs> my actual response is that is probably yes and no that they work for so long as the relevant company has kind of got its house in order right. in the sense that it's got its capital structure organized uh, and 
if if you were, for instance, a an experienced entrepreneur and you're on your second, third, fourth, you could probably get the documents and do it yourself. Mm-hmm. If you're a first-time entrepreneur, I think they do provide a great deal of transparency um, and, and, and a good bit of background and benchmarking as to what to expect if you're going to be taking and, professional and perhaps, money. And a framework for thinking maybe about how to organise yourself as a corporation. Yeah, uh, well, the, the organisation piece normally gets done a bit before these documents come into play mm-hmm. so um, well then perhaps i should reframe that as the reorganization bit. yeah that, that that that's right that's right um so the idea is that um yes you can take the documents and you could if you were if you if you if you've been part of a fundraising process before mm-hmm. you could probably fumble your way around and and have documents that work for you my sense is that they probably that would be a very, very small um, set of circumstances when that, that will happen. And, and as I said, that's when you've got, say, an experienced entrepreneur or a group of advisors who sit around you who and can actually craft it. And so from my perspective, I'm, I'm not troubled if people just want to print them and use them themselves. That's, right. you know, it's kind of a bit of a bit of a risk if you don't go and speak to someone and say, well, how do these, how do these documents work? But well, I mean, we keep on referring to them as the documents. What are the specific documents in question? What are the specific yeah. Things that you can do with these agreements. Well, if I if I if I start with what are the documents? The documents start off with a term sheet, so which basically outlines the broad terms of uh, the investment that you're you're asking people to make. Uh, a subscription agreement, um, which is a document that says, "I'll write you a check, and in return for my check, you'll issue me shares." Right. Um, there's a shareholders agreement, which basically says, "Okay, as a shareholder in, in the company, this is how we're going to regulate all of our rights. Um, these are this is how you can." vote on board matters this is what happens when shareholders want to vote on things um, and then there's there's a there's a, a, a sheet dealing with the actual which sets out a set of pro forma preference share terms I'll get to that in a moment and there's so also these, are, these and, are for corporations that have multiple classes of shares but possibly um, right. the, la- the last document is is an IP assignment document which is which is kind of getting back to that putting your house in order right. making sure the IP all sits in the right entity right. Mark back to back to your point on the preference share terms the idea is that these would probably be a fairly low-ranking... If you were to go with preference shares, they would be a low-ranking preference share term. So they would almost be the first class of preference share on issue. And and the preference that these shares uh, have is just a one-times liquidation preference, mm-hmm. which is probably more... In terms of founder-friendliness, it's, it's the friendliest you could probably find in that it's, it's a one-time non-participating preference share, which basically means if the business goes belly up, they're the first to get their money back. But if the business goes well, they don't double dip. They don't get their money back right. and then share pro rata with everyone else. It's right. you, you share the same as everyone else if you do well. They're just well. front of the queue, basically. Yeah, effectively. It's effectively front of the queue in, in, in a situation where the business doesn't go as well as you would like. So one of the things I didn't hear is that it doesn't sound like there was a convertible note document in that sense. No, there's not. There's and not. the reason for that is... Uh, there's no reason behind not including it. That may be something that comes in uh, in time. I think... Convertible notes do need a little bit more education around when people are going to use them. There are there, there can be some adverse um, set of circumstances that arise if you if you if you go raise with a convertible note. So long as people know what they're getting into, I have no problems with raising with a convertible note. But there are added slight complexities with with a convertible note. It's because the person who holds the note is a debt holder, right? And so they have a different. Um, 
the, uh, I guess, class of preference if the business goes belly up. Well, they're they're a creditor was, as opposed to an equity holder. Right. This is why I was thinking when you're doing the, the preferences. But then, now let me ask, Dean, do you think that with some of the companies that you might seed fund, would, that, would this accelerate the process and make things cheaper for a company that's looking for seed funding, that these documents exist? Yeah, I think they definitely would. Um, I still think that some individual firms will prefer to use their own docs, which actually can be quite similar to the, the, the standard docs. Right. Um, and also I think that there will be some specific terms that people uh, won't like. Um, oh, in any agreement, that's always yeah, and that's true. Sure, and I think in these particular documents, sometimes uh, founders will will look at the way that the shares can be bought back and decide that's not so founder friendly. Well, I, I don't I don't disagree with that. Um, I think that the documents the documents aren't meant to be a code. There are there are starting point. If you're going to take investment, these are the conversations you're going to have. These are the type of things that can give rise. Now, to Dean's point around the buyback, there's 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 plenty of ways you can kind of skin the founder issue in terms of buyback, founder vesting, things like that. But but the expectation around founder vesting is well, if someone's going to write you a check, there's an expectation that you're going to stick around for a certain period of time, and, and it's, <laughs> it's not it's not it's not intended to be yeah. handcuffs or anything like that. It's yeah. just recognizing that someone's writing a check, taking a bit of risk, and and effectively they're investing in the person. Yeah, and I, I mean, I guess you know the the problem is always that there's the expectation, and an agreement to enforce an expectation is always, uh, you know, I, I had someone say to me, "Everything's fine until you have to get the contract out of the table." Right? Yeah, that, that's right. right? I don't and, don't disagree. Yeah, I think also, so just touching on on Dean's point, there, there is no doubt that investors are going to have their own house view. So, right. so some investors. There'll be parts of that document that won't work for some investors, um, and there may be a lot. And, and And I also appreciate for a number of professional firms, funds that they have house documents that they like to use because it make, just makes it simpler for their investing process. Um, but I think really the intention for the document is entrepreneurs, founders can look at the document and say, "Hey, you know what? Actually, I know what what to broadly expect. Right. It may not be exactly like this, but it'll be in the ballpark." What's that? So, th- did you put the documents up on GitHub, or where are they being hosted? They're on Avcal, which is uh, the the Venture Capital Association. Okay, all right. Because I'm thinking, if you put them up on GitHub, then you could actually fork them. Mm. In other words, it would be a really interesting. You could take the open source strategy and actually go, okay, and here's what these guys wanted to do because they wanted to add these particular features or take these particular features out, so they could actually be a bit of a living document. I wonder if someone. I mean, clearly, someone could do that if they wanted. There, to. there is no doubt people can do that if if they if they if they. If they were minded to do it. Right. I think if if you were to do that and you kept chopping and changing them, and my view is the documents are going to evolve over time um, as trends in investment cycle change. So Australia is a fairly small um, pool of capital yes. for constant investments, and so so the research that we get in terms of investment trends is fairly limited. But you can go over to the US, and there there are firms on the West Coast who are doing two hundred and fifty odd deals every quarter. So so the data that you can get out of those firms is fantastic. And so so what what we, we try and do is we try and aggregate the, you know what's happening there, what we expect to happen in the market. Now now deal terms in the US are very different to deal terms or sorry, deal terms in the US are different to deal terms in Australia. Right. I think they're becoming quite similar, but the idea is to kind of replicate to an extent what's happening in the US with this is this is how deals get done. 
One of the really good things is, is an education piece for entrepreneurs because often they come to us uh, not even sure what sort of documents uh, are going to be put in front of them. Right. And I, I think that's I think that's right. And and it's a it's a it, it happens time and time again. And the idea, or one of the ideas behind here, is that if if an entrepreneur was to go and or founder was to go and get some professional money from a, from a firm, Carthona, other venture fund. They can just go to a reference library, which which would be the Avcal site, where we've got these documents, and say, okay, well, okay, well, this is this is how a shareholder agreement looks. This is how a subscription deed looks. This is what I should be expecting in a term sheet. So what what Carthona have given me, you know, it's kind of ballpark. It's it's, it's about right. So so you're not the education piece won't be necessarily from the fund from from the base up it'll, right. the, 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 the founder or the entrepreneur will come with a hopefully if they've looked at the documents will come with a degree of knowledge and so it just makes the process much simpler and the, comp- the, the conversations probably a little bit more advanced than you might otherwise have in terms of if it's a fresh founder never seen investment documents before hopefully it just makes it simpler and one of the things to say about that is often uh, doing a deal or closing a deal for us one of the biggest issues can be if the if the entrepreneur has a lawyer that's not experienced in startup documentation. Mm-hmm. Often it could be a family friend or a lawyer they've used before, and suddenly that lawyer is learning yeah. uh, startup documents, yeah. which is highly frustrating for us. Uh, yeah, I, 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 <laughs> You're being very very polite with that. <laughs> I, I, I agree entirely, and I think the other one is the family lawyer is an interesting one because sometimes. Um, family officers, high nets, uh, in my experience, um, you can... Now, I, I, I'm fully appreciative of, of the, the contributions they make to the to the, to the industry and, and, yeah. and funding businesses, but sometimes they can have a slightly different view of the world around how an early-stage business needs to be run, and, and you need to give you need to give the founder some degree of flexibility to run the business, and, and you can... You can protect your economic investment so in, in a range of ways. I mean, there's almost a bigger issue too, which is someone who is running that family wealth fund yeah. might not even be interested in going into the startup space because they've had no experience, they have no guidance, they don't know where to start, right? And so you're actually giving them that leg up to make them have some degree of comfort around that. Yeah, that, 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 that's right. That's right. So it, 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 it helps. The, the documents help the community right. as well. Yeah. Well, we often find that that those type of lawyers can actually really harm an entrepreneur's case. It's the old VC joke: uh, you can set the valuation, but I'll set the terms. <laughs> <laughs> Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. All right, Daniel. Thank you very much for joining us in this week in Startups Australia. Hey, my pleasure. Hi, this is Mark Pesci. I'd like to tell you a few things about our sponsor, Venue Mob. Venue Mob connects people with the perfect space for a party, a dinner, a conference, a meeting, a wedding. The Venue Mob events team have scoured Australia to find venues to suit any kind of celebration, large or small, intimate or over the top, with a dedicated business events team to provide exceptional service for corporate clients in Melbourne, Sydney and Brisbane. With all these events, and with the millions of dollars worth of functions and events sent to partner venues every month, Venue Mob has the relationships and the buying power to secure the best price for the best venue. Find out more at venuemob.com.au. And we're back. I'm here with Dean and Josh. So, Dean. 
I saw Bruce Bilson give a talk at the National Press Club a couple of weeks ago, and he announced that high net worth individuals who can currently essentially buy permanent residency for, I think, a 10 million, bringing $10 million into the country. And they would normally do this by buying real estate, which is now no longer maybe such mm-hmm. a good idea. He's indicated that, in fact, they'll be required to put $500,000 into an investment fund, something like a VC investment fund for innovation in Australia. I now heard from someone who's well-connected in the field that there may be 3,000 people in queue waiting for that visa, and that within the next two years, that will actually go from half a million dollars to a million dollars. So just on those numbers as they stand we are now talking about the formation of a venture capital fund of 1.5 billion dollars i'm not sure but i think that may be bigger than all of the other funds in australia put together so so dean help me here what what does this mean for VC funding in australia do we even know yet i don't think we do really know i think a lot of the details are still to be worked out. Um, I mean, is this more than a thought bubble right now? No, no, no. There's definitely there's there's documentation, right? Uh, official documentation about it. Still details to be sorted out. But on the face of it, you're right. Five hundred thousand uh, per person to be invested uh, in a ESVCLP, or uh, and uh, one and a half million in emerging companies funds, with the rest to be balanced. Um, is a huge thing for investment in Australia. Now, whether 3,000 people will like those terms uh, is a different matter, I think, because um, the the funds for the VC needs to be upfront. It needs Mm. to be put in cash. Mm. uh, And I think investors will be uh, somewhat wary about doing that um, without knowing where those investments are going. I think traditionally they've known very strongly uh, for previous visas, they've known it's going into their Point Piper house. Right, or, or to the mine or... Yeah, or to into um, into bonds that they could be really sure that the money was coming back after a right. certain amount of time. Right. So it was in one case, uh, a certain case of parking the money. This way, the money really is at risk. And I guess that's why the, the visa's been designed that way. Right. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, who is then going to have oversight of it? Is it going to be the government? And at what point, at what extent does the government have oversight of it? Does it is there a control level? Is, does it then become the government picking winners and losers in this sort of thing? How does exactly. exactly. Do we have the um, the Bruce Bilson fund similar to the George yeah. Brandis fund well, for the arts? You had with the superannuation, uh, the, the future fund, uh, set up by Peter Costello, who is now running it. So mm-hmm. essentially... You know, he went. He went from that job straight to to running the superannuation. And I, I can't actually imagine that a government would actually want to have this. I mean, yes, everyone wants to have a billion and a half dollars to be able to throw around. So there's going to be the temptation, but I can't imagine that picking winners is ever going to be a successful strategy. And this, it's hard enough for a professional to do it. Mm. So how could you get a gang? <laughs> <laughs> I don't, not well, professional. But I don't think there's any there's any suggestion that there's going to be a government fund, funds that will decide. Yeah. It's going to be uh, Aus industry registered funds mm. that will largely be professional funds that are already uh, in existence 
that will be recipients of those funds if they can if they can structure themselves properly and okay so this then brings up the next level of question it's like all right we now have this huge inflow of capital this huge pool which will form probably over the next 24 36 months mm-hmm. is there any fund in australia at this point that is structured to be able to handle that and i mean the next question after that is are there enough investment vehicles in the startup community in australia to absorb that kind of capital i think the short answer to both those questions is no <laughs> well because we've gone we're screwed we, we've gone from famine to feast yes so to speak so screwed is probably not the right word because the australian vc in early stage innovation scene is not great at the moment there's there's not enough money um for the amount of companies that are being created um certainly if you look at the number of businesses that are backdooring reversing into isx listed uh stocks and then becoming highly illiquid um it shows that certainly later stage vc is still very funded very stunted um and i think Soaking up one and a half billion dollars is a is a very very tough ask, uh, and I don't think that would be long term positive for the business. But certainly somewhere between where we are at the moment and there would be a good thing. What what would be the immediate impact? The immediate impact is that I think you'd see more VC funds being set up because people would see that as a as an easy way to raise funds. Um, like in all other businesses, I think there'd be a a um, concentration of funds around people with uh, track records and and a history of actually being able to execute deals. So, so I mean, I'm wondering if it also doesn't start to act as a bit of a magnet. Do we start to actually see a reverse talent flow where talent actually comes from California to Australia to be able to find funding because there's more money sort of running around loose and not enough companies to put it sure. in. Sure. Th- there's already a, a somewhat of a flow of that happening with one looking at one page as a highly successful flow on the SX. Mm. There are um, other um, device companies, medical device companies being funded out of Australia, especially because we have very attractive R&D tax credits. Mm. Um, but... Um, there's often the case where we have very smart companies that feel like they have to list abroad or get funded abroad to to roll out that you could well find australian born companies that that have global significance and want to roll out elsewhere could still be funded at home so i mean theoretically what will happen and and i guess we're assuming probably uh, a three to four year timeline right for all of this to happen so theoretically what will happen is that it will be fundamentally transformative i guess starting with the vcs but then the companies that are funding those vcs because otherwise everything just melts down right it's a real sort of evolve or die moment is what we're saying here. for sure and i think as an early stage vc um the, there tends to be a selection bias of businesses that aren't going to be capital hungry mm. later in their life cycle mm. because you know that there's not that much late stage uh, funding around. If you know that there's a big pool of capital and to get significant amounts out, that tends to be in later rounds. Right. That you, the early stage VCs will start to think, okay, there is more money around here now, so I'm prepared to invest in things that are going to be capital hungry. Eventually, there'll be great companies, but they're going to need to soak up a significant amount of capital, and this could be a, a route to that. 
it, it is it's I wonder if the government had any sense that this was going to be so I mean it's it's, it's a great thought bubble but did they really think about what it meant to inject this kind of capital into a market that's still rather small. I think that could be one of the potential issues as well. If, if they get it, if they get more demand than what they're expecting, if it, if they get much more money than they're expecting, and it, it gets, I guess, this kind of gold rush thing happening again, yeah. uh, does that mean that all the popular, I guess, processes and everything will be in place to ensure that you know uh, it doesn't go belly up and doesn't completely screw people over? Yeah. Eventually, it's, you've got to balance it. I or, guess. or even that a lot of these investors don't just end up losing their money, mm. right? Yeah. Which is not an outcome I think the government wants either. They want this to benefit no. both both parties. That's right. And the the go- the government's largely walked away from other programs to help uh, early stage companies and VCs in getting rid of the investment innovation fund Mm. Um, but that was obviously relatively limited 100 million dollars and sometimes uh, not all of that was given out Um, so uh, look you'd have to have great faith in politicians to believe that this was joined up thinking (laughs) and and on this show no not so much is there anywhere else in the world that they can have a look at to try and replicate it because I, I, my understanding is that this this kind of thing has been done elsewhere in the world it, the government's very sort of committed you hear Turnbull talk all about the time about pinching ideas from the UK and things like that when it comes to like digital transformation and things like that well so. I mean just having come back from New Zealand and talked to the folks at the New Zealand investment venture investment fund and they have a seed in this uh, later stage you know the, the Kiwis have been good at this but it's a very hands off thing you know the fund is run completely independently I mean it, there's money from the government in it but the fund is run completely mm. independently and they syndicate everything so that they they basically act as a keystone for other investors to be able to come in and join in so there are models that we could take a look at but they're functioning with 60 million dollars <laughs> not with 1.5 billion dollars yeah, sure i think one of the things um maybe the flip side of saying you don't want investors to lose money is also that if you think that these are will all be by uh, by its very nature foreigners mm. that invest in early stage innovation in Australia. Now, if this is highly successful, those gains will go to people that were essentially outside the country mm. when they gave that money across. So there's a flip side to that too, that uh, in some ways the, the government should also be promoting uh, Australians to invest mm. in early stage businesses too. And that's not done well at all in this country. Yep. You're listening to This Week in Startups Australia. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Mark Pesci, and I'd like to take a moment to talk about a project that's close to my heart. For the past few years, I've been giving folks a lot of advice on their crowdfunding campaigns. I've learned a lot from my own campaigns, and now I'd like to pass along the secrets of successful crowdfunding to you. So this August, I'm leading full-day seminars in both Melbourne and Sydney that will help you find your backers, show you how to set your goals, and teach you everything you need to know to execute a successful crowdfunding campaign. Crowdfunding is the new way to bring your startup or your album or your film or your book to life. Find out more at markpesci.com slash crowdfunding. This is Mark Pesci. I'm here with Dean Durrell and Josh Taylor. We are doing our new special. The next thing coming up is this question that we haven't really asked yet on this show, but we probably need to, which is, 
what's up with all the telcos trying to be VCs in this country? Now, I have to be very gentle because one of the series sponsors for this broadcast is Optus Innovate, which is one of these venture arms. But I, I know the people at Marudi, which is Telstra's venture arm. They're also lovely people. There is a lot of really good talent in this country that's being pulled into the telcos to innovate. What's going on here? It's completely different from what they do as well. If you look at the core of their businesses, and, and Telstra and Optus are probably the best examples of it, they are companies that are looking for ways to try and, I guess, prevent them from just becoming dumb pipes. And they're both... This, this, These, I guess, I guess, are, are the arms of Even, even <laughs> though being a dumb pipe, mind you, is a good business, business to be in because it's a cash cow, right? It was traditionally... Uh, now that we're moving away from where we're moving away from voice and uh, text to just pure data, uh, where people are demanding much more data mm. but not willing to pay for it yet, you need to have those services that run on the top, and, that, and or bundle other things with it to, in order to make money now. So I think that for for these telcos, a lot of it is is just I guess dipping your toes out and seeing what you can what you can get out of it. Mm. If you look at a lot of the companies that that uh, Mirudi and Innovate have uh, invested in. A lot of them, there are, there are a few cloud companies, there are a few app companies which you kind of would expect with a telco, but there's just like there's some stuff like some map stuff and things like that that you just wouldn't normally associate with a telco, or, or have any sort of reason for w- wanting to know why a telco would want to invest. Well, in that one of the Marudi companies was a connected lab instrument, so lab instruments with Wi-Fi, which is actually a brilliant idea. Yeah. But not something I would think of Telstra for. I can imagine that the Telstra's probably thinking, you know, ten steps ahead. What if that? What if that? That company comes up with something that is the next iteration of Wi-Fi that, mm. that can offer you know connectivity without having to roll out those very very expensive mobile networks stuff like that. Mm. I mean, Dean, from your point of view, are you happier that a company's been through one of these accelerators, or does it make any difference for you in, when you're thinking about investment? I think it's very much case by case. Sometimes um, there could be negative selection. Um, a truly great entrepreneur, and let's face it, we're investing in people when we invest mm. in, in early stage companies. A truly great entrepreneur often has the ability to start things and manage things themselves. There will be some good companies that come out of accelerators and incubators, but a lot of the great ones uh, have bootstrapped everything themselves. Mm. Um, in, in this case, um, I actually think it's very admirable that big companies are looking at innovation that closely, prepared to play a bit loose. Uh, in our uh, experience, some of the big companies that we come across with our with our either contacts because we worked in many of the big companies, um, innovation is very much at the back of their mind. There, there's so much uh, institutional lethargy right. that. Uh, innovation has no place um, and so actually taking a, an approach where you have an outside part of your organisation to find out what's going on, to finance it mm. and to feed back those lessons into the business is actually a very, very good thing for them. As long as the business is actually prepared to learn from what's happening <laughs> by the end of it. It's, it's always going to be a problem, right? You know, you do have a lot of companies that claim that they want to innovate and then when it actually comes to adopting the innovation, they freak out and they walk away from well, it. Well, oft, often there are turf battles. Uh-huh. Uh, we've seen that in a number of times where innovation or 
or off strategy um, is seen as a, as a way to cure things. So, in, I mean, now that you have, I think, Woolies doing an incubator, <laughs> I think it was Westpac has got theirs, and we've got more fintech incubators in Sydney than you can shake a stick at. Is there going to be a major business in Australia that will not have its own version of an incubator in a decade's time. Well, let me tell you a little story. At Christmas time, uh, I was invited by our lawyers to a lunch, and I was on a table with solely directors, uh, chair people from major top ASX 200 listed businesses. Um, we started talking about what we did. I explained that I was an early stage investor, and the, the table asked me, oh, tell me about social media. So I, I sent it back to them. So who on the table has got a social media account? Mm. One young lawyer had a Twitter account. Uh, no one was on Facebook? No one. No <laughs> one was on Facebook. Oh, my God. No one had Instagram. No one used Snapchat. Not one person. And my, my lesson for them was all businesses are tech businesses. Mm. If you don't believe your business is a tech business, you're being disrupted whilst you eat. Did they believe you? Look, I think they... They don't necessarily believe me. They don't necessarily uh, buy into this new fad Mm. of the internet and the cloud, but they know something's coming. But, again, many times... They they don't want to upset the apple cart. They're very keen to stay uh, on message with the board. Uh, and I think in time, you will see outside uh, independent directors um, who have big technology backgrounds and innovation backgrounds actually um, as a major board appointment. So, I mean, is that, in fact, what we're going to start to see now? And a lot of these companies that have, say, older boards, uh, you know, I gave a keynote at the Australian Institute of Company Directors a few years ago, and I sat in front of this room full of people who sat on all the major boards and explained Uber to them because they, none of them had heard of it. I think it had only just barely launched in Australia, but I sort of explained how the whole business model worked. And it was really interesting hearing them reflect on it afterward that these were things that they just weren't hearing from inside the business. And you have to wonder how long that can go on before, I don't even know, before they do get disrupted, right? You know, is this something that's going to happen? In other words, is it going to require a dieback before these companies change? And it's always a question. I think that's that's a possibility, but I think with the... The new CEO uh, of new CEOs coming into businesses mm. um, will be much more tech savvy. Mm. Will be much more adept at using the tools that technology gives them. And I think if you if you're not up to speed with that, um, it's going to be hard to to sit on a board and contribute meaningfully to things that are based around the discussions that are based around technology. Yeah. You're listening to This Week in Startups Australia. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Mark Pesci. I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, eCal. eCal is the first right-time communications platform. It synchronizes rich events content, anything from sporting events to concerts to business appointments, directly into any popular personal calendar on mobile, desktop, or social for engagement at the right time in the right place. 
the eCal Dynamic Calendar Marketing System is proven to deliver a higher value marketing return than more traditional digital communications, working to increase awareness, acquire data, and drive high value sales and engagement. You can sign up for a free eCal account at eCal.com. Hi, this is Mark Pesci, and I'm here with Dean Durrell and Josh Taylor. This is the new special now. We're going to talk about one of your companies, Dean, Ingogo. They just had a great big raise. It was somewhere on the order of around $12 million, which is a big raise for Australia. So so could you tell us something about that? I think the important thing to say is Ingogo is not just a taxi hailing app, but much more of a mobile payments system these days. So mobile payments in the sense of cab charge or mobile payments in the because they're one of the investors in Ingogo are they not uh, no they're not they're not an investor in, in Ingogo oh, okay. uh, so they're, so they're a, they're a, they would be a competitor so okay. to speak um, no largely that they're a mobile payments within taxis mm-hmm. but also outside taxis these mm-hmm. days so they have a deal with zero such that um, people that use zero or maybe tradespeople um, can use their mobile payment system to take payment without waiting for to send out an invoice and someone to send them a check. They can they can go from so it's like Square or Stripe or absolutely, PayPal. Absolutely. Yep. All right. So okay. So they're going okay. So they're going into a crowded space, which is one reason why they're going to need a lot of money, presumably. Sure. But uh, you know, Ingogo at the moment have a, have a market leading product. It's EMV compliant, um, and the management team they're led by. By Hamish have done a very very good job by not just being down one vertical, which was you know starting in taxis, right. um, to be very smart in going for other other verticals too. And have they left Australia or are they just working in Australia? They're just time? in Australia at the moment. Yeah. Okay. So have they made any announcements around that? No. Okay. All right. So part of the thing that's really interesting about this raise of this twelve twelve and a half million is that four million came from what we would call crowd investing. Now, we, sh- we should explain here. Crowd investing means, of course, you go out to a whole bunch of people. In this case, these are all classed by ASIC as sophisticated investors. They pass the threshold of a quarter million dollars a year or $2 million in, uh, in assets. And so $4 million of this raise came from crowd investing. And that's the largest investment that Venture Crowd's done, yes? Sure. What does that mean for, I think, both the way companies are going to raise, but also does that change what you do as a VC now? Look, I think it's, it's a definitely a viable option. When there were small numbers being raised by different crowdfunding uh, operations, it was relatively minor to to the rounds that were raised. Um, a round of $4 million is very significant. Mm-hmm. Um, look, I still think that companies will want to deal with with VCs because VCs bring much more than capital. Um, uh, uh, capital is just a commodity like anything else. Right. A proper VC brings a network, it brings pattern recognition, mm-hmm. it brings stability to a board, it brings uh, mentorship to the on- to the entrepreneur and the management team, it brings a whole gamut of things. Right. But I think having crowdfunding on the side of that um, because that's just opening up the universe of investors is, is a good thing for for the entrepreneurs and it's good for the VCs too. Yeah, do you think the VCs will actually go, this is one of the piles of money that we can access beyond the pile that's in our own fund? Do you think that they'll start to think of it as yet another tool? Well, it's interesting because um, obviously there are fees attached with crowdfunding uh, and there are some VC-owned 
um, crowdfunding sites and you know there's a few prospective ones out there that were put up by other VCs the interesting one um, um, is to look at the the model of angel list in mm. the US where you can have syndicates that charge carry in right. a t- as in a typical way a, a VC would um, and that's been a very successful way for people to to invest is alongside uh, notable entrepreneurs or angels that charge a carry on on their selection of, of companies. Josh, have we started to see real movement out of this government around retail crowd investing? I mean, you hear noises every once in a while, but is there any legislation sort of popping up around it? it it's yet? coming soon. We're promised. It's. It's. I think there was an announcement around the budget that they're saying that they're actually going to finally move on it and. It's going to happen at some point, but it's still it still hasn't happened yet. They've they've had other things that they've been focusing. Well, it's on I mean it's a sweeping series of changes to ASIC legislation, right? Yeah, and that's always yeah. going to make everyone nervous. Yeah, I think that's why they're they're taking it very slowly. It's it's, it's sort of it comes under the whole package of the small business thing that they were focusing on right, the budget, right. and it was one that people. When have the been government can maintain the narrative, it's about small business. So. Yeah, yeah, labor, labor was happy about it but they said it wasn't exactly how it should be happening so there might be a bit of a fight there in the senate at least well should we i mean this brings up another question should we be letting retail investors invest in highly risky ventures right this is the this is always Mm. the profound question because these people will be playing with money that could otherwise go into super or who knows what right I think I think um, your normal Australian investor should be exposed to high risk, high return ventures, but whether they should select them deal by deal is a completely different thing. <laughs> I think investing in their super funds, that right. then invest uh, in deals either deal by deal, co invest, or allocating money makes sense are we going to see super funds then start to do seed and vc funds because of that i mean so seriously imagine how weird this is going to get there there are there are super funds out there that are investing at early stage direct investments usually alongside well-known investors or entrepreneurs there's direct investments happening as we speak but is this i mean if we go to retail crowd investing is that going to turn the volume on that to 11 Look, I think the government is, is likely to fudge this issue in in that they will limit the amounts that people can invest in individual companies, mm. and uh, it's clear they're going to invest the total amounts, which could be very, very largely insignificant amounts. So five or ten thousand yeah. dollars compared perhaps. to compared to what we were talking about offshore investors right. bringing half a million dollars right. each. The, 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 this will be a drop in the ocean. They don't want to be the government that implemented this change, and then there's some big collapse. I think that's always going to be. They don't want to be. They don't want to take that risk themselves. Yeah, I think that's what yeah. it comes down to. So, but the interesting thing is the other sort of axis that this is going on is there's an article in Forbes this week which said that the amount of money that will be raised via crowdfunding next year will be $36 billion, and the amount of money that's expected to be raised in VC next year is only 30 billion. So you now have this thing that's literally brand new that is the other kind of crowd investing, right, mm. that is now taking place as an alternative funding mechanism. So has is that also changing the land? I mean, we now see every hardware company in Australia because hardware is hard to make and it's hard to fund, they always have a strategy around crowdfunding. So is this now going to be the new seed level funding? Mm. I think it's important to distinguish between um, investing and 
uh, advanced product purchase mm. because we're seeing that via yes. Kickstarter, Indiegogo, Possible campaigns where people are essentially putting their idea out there and often those some of those ideas are, are fantastic and people are prepared to prepay for, for a product. Um, I think a large amount of that, those 36 billion is being mopped up by this this uh, this type of funding, mm. so those and it's very clear mm. that those those investors, those people who pay for that, are not investors. As the Oculus Rift early early uh, purchasers were to find out when Facebook bought them for two billion, right. they didn't actually own any of the company. They right. just prepaid for for a consumer rift. Right. Although the interesting thing is, I think we're actually going to start to see hybrid forms, where in fact you're going to pre-buy a product mm-hmm. and it will also because that's going to be part of the juice that will get you to hand over the money. So I agree with you. I think the world we're in right now, it's very black and mm-hmm. white. Except from my point of view as a startup funder, because now I can go, actually, wait a minute, I don't have to go and shake my booty around getting investment, which can be both good and bad thing because I have this other channel open. And you now have a generation of companies that are thinking that I don't need to go to a seed round or to an angel round, but I can actually just go straight out to the market Mm -hmm. with the product. Is that going to be, I mean, it's already changed the shape of things. Is is that going to be the kind of thing that makes it more difficult for companies to get uh, financing further along if they've always gone directly to the market for that? I, I don't think so. I still think that most companies prefer to, to deal with one sophisticated investor if they can. Mm. We've got an example where one of our portfolio companies, Zero Latency, the a VR company, a big decision for us often is is their product market fit we want to understand have the entrepreneurs built something that the market wants to buy there's a customer for those guys at zero latency very smartly they did a possible campaign where they had a a a a group of people whole number of people buy tickets Mm. and that was really evidence to us that they'd built something amazing but actually there was a market to buy mm. so in in terms of our investment thesis so you looked at it as validation it was absolute validation for us uh, we invested prior to to that possible campaign being delivered mm. and in fact our investment really helped them deliver that but it was really clear to us that people said we we, we want this product yeah and i suspect i'm going to be having those kids on a, a show coming up when we do a special in the third series on virtual reality. All right. Dean Durrell of Carthona Capital, Josh Taylor of ZDNet. Thank you very much for being on the new special episode of This Week in Startups Australia. You're very Thank welcome. You. Hi, it's Mark Pesci. And listening to the show today, it's becoming increasingly clear that there are big changes in store for the entire startup ecosystem in Australia. More money is going to be flowing in, and that's going to be bringing more opportunities and more problems. We're going to need to lift our game to take advantage of these opportunities, and we're going to have to suffer through all of the growing pains as we mature into an economy creating world-class startups. We'll get there, but it's going to take a few years. Now, if you want to see some photos of our guests or a link to the documents that Daniel Atkin prepared to help startups do their legal work, check our Tumblr out at twistartupsaus.tumblr.com. Now, big thanks to our sponsors, Venue Mob and Ecal. Their support 
makes this podcast possible. Thanks again to Felix Warmoth and AnalogCabin.net for his hard work creating a podcast that's always a joy to listen to. Thanks to Daniel Atkin of Spark Helmore, Dean Durrell of Carthona Capital, and Josh Taylor of ZDNet for making the time to come on the show. We'll be back in a fortnight with an episode that will fearlessly face the one thing no startup ever wants to consider. Until then, this is Mark Pesci thanking you for listening to This Week in Startups Australia.